0: All right, hope everyone's Sunday morning is going well. Just a reminder, Art is suffering in the beautiful island of Hawaii. And so he's called in the bullpen and he said, Hey, you're up. Um, and so here I am this morning. You guys have second string bringing you the word this morning. Um, and I'll tell you this, and I've shared this with a couple people this morning. Um, the Lord knows what he's doing because I, know, I didn't think I was going to teach 54 and 55. But here I am. Art said, hey, you're, you're going to need to put something together. And so I've done that. And I will tell you, Isaiah 54 is challenging. There's a lot going on here um, and I've learned a lot. And so my goal here this morning is just to share what I've learned and my heart behind it. But before we dive into that, I want to I want to kind of set the stage Help us remind you of some things. Remember, we're at the peak of our study in Isaiah. We've been studying Isaiah now for over a year. And we've been building up to chapter 53. And 53 was last week, the last couple weeks. And as you know, Isaiah 53 is the last servant song. And it talks about the suffering of the Messiah. And it communicates about a Messiah who is to come. And he's to be that perfect sacrifice. And we all know who that is. It's Jesus Christ. And so chapter 53 describes to us the work that Christ accomplished. And some of you are probably familiar with the saying, hey, there's a little more meat on that bone, right? And so last week, we took a big chunk out of that piece of meat. And Isaiah 54 and 55, there's a little more meat on this bone. And we're going to continue to dive into this. And so there's a couple things we need to remember about what we have learned from the book of Isaiah As we come off of chapter 53 and we begin to understand chapter 54 and 55. So remember the first half of Isaiah, God was using Israel for his purposes. Israel was to be his chosen nation for other nations to see who God was and for them to come to a saving knowledge of who God was. But as we know, Israel failed at this. They failed miserably. Because of that failure, God brought judgment upon them, and he also warned about this judgment that's to come. Isaiah has been communicating this, and he also is warning about the judgment to come to other nations up to this point. We also need to remember that the last third of this book, which is where we're at. So starting in chapter 52 all the way to 56, okay, is future judgment. Prophecy. There's a lot of it here, right? So a lot of this hasn't occurred yet. So eschatology, we're going to see some of that. And then also keep in mind, there, there's a shift in God's plan of redemption here. Okay, God is no longer going to be using Israel for his purpose. The door has been shut temporarily. And so as we read in this chapter, God has not, And he will not abandon Israel. And we're going to read this today in 54. And then God in his great wisdom and what he wants to accomplish now shifts to other nations or the Gentile nations. And that's you and I. And we will read and see God's magnificent kingdom expand. And it's going to go beyond the nation of Israel. So God has now chosen his son, which is why we're coming off Isaiah 53 to help accomplish this, not just for Gentiles, but also for Israel. And so now we get here to chapter 54 and 55, and I would make a strong argument that chapters 53 through 55 are all linked together. And you cannot understand 54 and 55 without understanding 53 So when we talk about our illustration of being at the peak of Isaiah of this mountain, okay, the climax of Isaiah, we often think of chapter 53. But I believe and what I want you to think about in the future is that it's 53, 54 and 55. So think about we're at the peak and now we're kind of walking around at the top of this mountain with chapter 54 and 55. And so hopefully this helps you kind of set the stage in your mind. As we begin to unpack chapter 54. And so let me read you a quote from Spurgeon about this chapter here. It's in your handout. It says, try and suck all the sweetness that you can out of this chapter while we read it. The personal application of a promise to the heart by the Holy Spirit is that which is wanted. The honey in Jonathan's wood never enlightened his eyes until he dipped the point of his rod into it. And tasted it. Try and do the same. This chapter is the wood wherein every bath doth drip with virgin honey. And then he says, sip, taste, be satisfied. So 54 is now going to highlight the promises of God. The salvation and restoration of Israel. And those who believe in Christ. And then ultimately, it's going to lead into chapter 55, which will be an invitation for all to accept the Messiah for salvation. Chapter 53, remember, described the work Christ accomplished. And now chapter 54 is going to highlight the results of his work from chapter 53. The Lord Jesus came to do his father's will. He came to do something for sinners. Chapter 54 is just going to be an extension of the Father's will. And so keep in mind, even though I have categorized this chapter as the results, chapter 54 is ultimately a chapter about salvation for Israel and the promises of God, which is why I've titled our lesson Standing on the Promises of God. Chapter 54 is communicating what will happen after Messiah's suffering. The promise of salvation given and offered to everyone, including the nation of Israel. What we will see here in chapter 54 is the way that God's redemptive promises to Israel and to the whole world get fulfilled in the millennial kingdom and eternally and the new creation. It was a little bit mind-blowing to me as I was studying this chapter. Chapter 54 is essentially the results for what will happen once Israel repents and prays the prayer that we read about in Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 through 7. This chapter is describing the effects of their repentance. How God will keep his promises and fulfill everything he has said. And I want to remind you something here as we go through this. When God speaks, it happens. We see a picture here of the millennial kingdom for us as a church. And so keep this in mind. When Isaiah, during, when Isaiah um, looks back at here in chapter 54, he looks back at Israel's trouble. And as we're reading this, right, the argument of why this is for Israel, it's not speaking of the experience for the Gentiles. That's coming in 55. When it speaks of Israel dwelling in their cities, we're going to read this in verse 3. And then it makes a reference to a city which can only be Jerusalem. Verse 11. The focus here is on Israel. It communicates Israel as an illustration of a wife in verses 6 through 10. Deserted and restored by the Lord. This can only be Israel. Why is this? Because he never took any other nation besides Israel. And you can read about this covenant that he made with Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And then in chapter 55, as we're going to look at next week, continues to extend this invitation to all nations who are thirsty. So in 55, we're going to read that. And so these two chapters, 54 and 55, give the effect of the work in which Christ has done for both the Jew and the Gentile. This chapter anticipates the salvation and restoration of Israel. There's a small foreshadow of this occurring in part for this restoration of Israel and it's out of the Babylonian exile, which happened in 536 BC. And so remember Israel is communicating or Isaiah is communicating to Israel. What is to come, right? And they're going to be in the Babylonian exile. They're going to be in captivity. And he's basically telling them you are also going to be rescued out of this um, exile as well. And so as we think about this, there yet remains this promise to be fulfilled. So some of it's fulfilled in a small foreshadow of God rescuing and restoring Israel out of the Babylonian exile. But the bigger picture is that it hasn't happened because it's in the future for the millennial kingdom. And so there's a lot of eschatology here in this chapter. Okay, and so we need to remember The last third of the book of Isaiah is future eschatological. And so kind of a quick timeline for us to remember. We have the rapture of the church. Then there's the tribulation. And remember in the tribulation, Jerusalem, Israel surrounded by its enemies. And then we see that they're going to pray the prayer from Isaiah 53 and repent. And then Christ returns. And then after that. Christ establishes the millennial kingdom. All Israel is being saved. And this is the description that we're seeing here in Isaiah 54. Okay. This is what we're seeing. And so one more observation I would like to point out as we're going through this is in verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, No weapon that is formed against you will succeed. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. And then here here it is. This is the inheritance of the slaves of Yahweh and their righteousness is from me, declares Yahweh. Heritage of the servants and the righteousness is from me. That includes us. This chapter is also very practical, not just for ancient, ancient Israel, but for us today. We will see that the prophet Isaiah lays out the plans that God has for his holy people in this world. But the clues in the chapter and the related context of the time, let us know that attaining these promises to the full call by the spiritual service, which is why the chapter ends with this reminder. So we're going to see this heritage kind of being weaved throughout this chapter as well. So keep that in mind um, as we kind of work backwards, but from the beginning of the book. So we will see Isaiah describe salvation to us. We will see the promise to Israel and the promise to the church be described here and point to the millennial kingdom where both Israel and the church will be together. We'll be a family, the children and the offspring God promised long ago. And so I hope today to establish Isaiah 54 as a section of scripture that we cherish a familiar path. Here is a call from God to be standing on the promises. And so I've broken this chapter down into two sections on your outline to kind of help us understand these promises. And so Isaiah 54 shows us three glorious pictures or illustrations of God's work of redemption. Two of these pictures are of a woman that we're going to see. And this woman in Isaiah 54 is Israel who had suffered the loss of many children in God's judgment. Okay. Therefore, Isaiah writes a message of comfort to them. So he's telling them judgment's coming. You're going to go to the exile. And then now here we are. He's going to begin to communicate and comfort the people of Israel. You're going to be rescued out of this exile, but ultimately You're going to be rescued for salvation in the future as well. So all of that came from the Lord because of their sin, that judgment. And so the servant had become ultimately the guilt offering for sin, as we read in chapter 53. So the effect was that the judgment against Israel and everyone is now over. And comfort from the Lord is being emphasized here in Isaiah 54. Israel will no longer be in danger of extinction. Nor is she going to be separated from her loving husband. Nor is she going to be a city that fears her enemy. And so these two points that I have here, the Lord assures his people of restoration and renewal. I'm kind of pulling that from verses 1 through 10. And then the second point is the Lord assures his people of safety and security. And I'm pulling that from verses 11 through 17. So let's read the first three verses here. It says, Shout for joy, O barren woman, who has not given birth. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For more numerous are the sons of the desolate one than the sons of the married woman, says Yahweh. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the the curtains of your dwelling. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your seed will possess many nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Jerusalem and Israel addressed as a woman is separated from her husband in these verses. And that's the Lord is assured and you'll see here is assured that her children, the people of Israel will be restored and will multiply and that she will be reunited with her husband. The main theme in these first 10 verses is the Lord is communicating a promise, a promise of restoration and renewal these first three verses are highlighting and communicating a deeper promise within that theme. If we want to be more specific, the Lord is promising and communicating a, prom- a promise of dominance. He is guaranteeing total dominance of his people. And so our first illustration of God's promise As I've outlined here is we see the restoration and renewal is compared to a barren woman who will now bear many children. So if you notice this section, these three verses, they're opening up with gentle commands here from Isaiah. Israel should sing. Israel should enlarge their tent. Israel should fear no more. Gentiles, us, are called to a similar blessing. And we're going to read more about this next week in Isaiah 55, 1, where people are invited and commanded to feast on the Lord without pain. All of this is in response to the work in which Christ did and accomplished from Isaiah 53. And so when we read, sing, O barren, you have not bore. Think about this. In ancient Israel, the barren woman carried an enormous load of shame and disgrace. Whether it was Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, or Hannah, infertility meant bitter disappointment. Here, the Lord is making this comparison to captive Israel as a barren woman who can now sing. Because now, as you read here in the scriptures, it says more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman. And so the Babylonian exile, as I mentioned, and captivity meant more than just oppression for Israel and judgment. It meant shame, disgrace, and humiliation. God promises a glorious release from not only the exile and captivity, which that happens, but also from the shame, disgrace and humiliation forever. So think about this for a moment. The typical response from someone who has found out they are barren, a woman who has found out she can't have children. There's probably a lot of agony here. There's probably bitter tears. There's probably questions and complaints. Why me? The last thing a lady would be found doing after finding this out is singing. Is singing. Yet, Isaiah is basically saying, this is the command. Sing, O barren one. So why is he giving this command? Sing because God has accomplished salvation for his people. God has accomplished salvation for Israel. Where Israel had failed, I have now sent my son, Jesus Christ, which we learned from chapter 53. Sing to him. God has done it for the sake of his name. And you know, this same passage We find in the New Testament and it's quoted by the Apostle Paul. And you read that in Galatians 4 verses 21 through 27. And I'm going to read it here. It says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorical. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother, for it is written, and here we have it from Isaiah 54, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. In reference to this miraculous birth of those under the new covenant, Paul also probably intended the phrase more are the children to also indicate that the children of the new covenant would outnumber the children of the old covenant. So here's the idea. Abraham had two children, which represents two covenants. One is law and slavery, the present Jerusalem. The other is grace and freedom. The Jerusalem above Jesus Christ. The new Testament orients us away from the literal Jerusalem to a heavenly Jerusalem. Sing and do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That is what's being driven here in this opening verse. There's only two ways to serve God. Seek to gain his approval by good works, circumcision and slavery, or trust Christ and his work and the freedom within that. So the Christian, us, we respond to this free gift of salvation. And it only leaves us with one response as well, is singing, praising. It cannot be helped. And so that's why it says it here. And so here's what I want to remind us as well. Israel, New Testament saints, his people do not participate in the servant's atoning work. He did his work for them without their help. But now they have benefits. They did not deserve or produce. And they are called to sing for joy. Like a woman who never went through labor, but has the baby nevertheless. The people of God enjoy the work of their savior on their behalf. Isaiah is teaching us here salvation Is a free gift. And this is the same. For you and I as well. Now as we move through the text here. As you see in verse 2 it says. Enlarge the place of your tent. The curse and shame of barrenness. Would be so completely broken. It's going to go away. It's no longer going to exist. And Israel will be fruitful. That they would have to expand their living space. This would be of comfort coming out of the Babylonian exile, right? Because they felt themselves very small in number, weak. And so here we have this promise from Isaiah that would strengthen them as they come out of this exile. So anyone enlarging a tent, think about this, would look very foolish if the children did not come. This is not possible here in this text. Because it is not a conditional promise, but a declared fact that their seed will spread out so much that they are going to possess many nations. And so here's an example I thought about and think about this. You're being told to build a bigger home. You only have two kids. You're being told 10 more kids are coming. You have no idea where those 10 kids are coming but you're being told to build the house. And so think about stepping out into that and just the cloudiness and the muddiness of that promise. Purchasing a home is already a big deal. A three bedroom, two bath is a big deal. It's a big accomplishment. Purchasing a bigger home for 10 new kids is a bigger deal when you don't even know where the kids are coming from but you're being told to do it. Nonetheless, family and friends asking you, what are you doing? Why do you need a house this big? So that's the easiest illustration I could think of as I was thinking through this text. And so all the commands, such as enlarging the tent, right? Sing to the Lord. Rest on who God is and what he has promised. What's interesting here is Isaiah, he tells Israel, they are not told to produce the children. God will do that. Very interesting. They are just to enlarge the tent. You're just to build the house. Likewise, the Christian life is not an activity so that we may have an inheritance with Christ. This is a secure gift for each believer. We begin our lives as Christians with our inheritance firmly in place. Gospel truth replaces uncertainty with joyful singing. And so he goes on to say in verse three here, he says, your descendants for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your seed will possess many nations and will resettle the desolate cities the Lord will finally remove the nations of the world from his presence and cause his redeemed people to occupy a new creation. So what is this prophetic picture uh, portraying here? First, it is indicating that the Lord's people shall be preserved. They shall not be exterminated by their captors. On the contrary, they shall be regathered to their God and dwell with him in a promised land, which is the new creation. In the Old Testament era, the people of Israel were preserved from the Babylonian exile and they were restored to God's presence and they resettled in the land of Canaan with the Lord's blessing. And so here's what one commentary had to say. They said a lot better than I probably could. It says the final fulfillment of this promise is realized in the fact that by virtue of the atoning blood of Christ, the whole body of believers shall be preserved through the final judgment and welcomed by our heavenly father into his new creation there to glorify and enjoy him with the fullness of his presence. And blessings. And here, we may want to take note of such a passage from the New Testament in the Book of Revelation, Revelation twenty-two, verses one through five, which even now is still compelled to present these escha, eschatological, sorry, events in figurative terms. <coughs> And so, we think about verse 17 when I opened up in our introduction about our Christian heritage. This, for us, is our Christian heritage, our assurance. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be preserved from the final judgment in order to inherit the fullness of God's new creation. As the Lord declared this in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. He says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. This is a comforting promise he has made to all of us who believe in him. And he's making this promise to Israel as well. So as we move on, as if infertility of a barren woman isn't bad enough, now we're going to see widowhood. And so a situation, it's going from bad to worse. The widow lived with reproach in these days. Even worse, you, Israel, are like a wife here, deserted in her youth, is grieved. But get this where it says here in the scriptures, the Lord is your redeemer and your husband. So the Lord will have compassion on you. After wrath, there will be a covenant of peace. Our second illustration of assurance this morning, uh, that basically illustrates restoration and renewal, is compared to a deserted wife who is comforted by her husband. Israel will be restored like a widow who is rescued from her reproach. And we're going to kind of see that restoration over these next four to uh, verses, four to 10. And so look at me in verse four through six. It says, do not be afraid for you will not be put to shame and do not feel dishonored for you will not be humiliated. But you will forget the shame of your virginity and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more for your husband is your maker, whose name is Yahweh of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For Yahweh has called you like a wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. And so when we look at verses four and five, the former shame, right, which is sometimes endured by some women who are not able to have children, all of that's going to be gone. And Israel was once a proud nation. Remember this, under David and Solomon, they had fallen to the status of exiles, God sending them into judgment in the foreign land. No one was looking on them as a nation anymore. This disgrace and what they essentially brought up through this judgment, this disgrace would end because of the intervention of, of the mighty hand of God. And we read about that mighty arm of the Lord in Isaiah 53, verse 1. He had to intervene. So, apart from him, Israel would be non existent, as almost every other nation was during their time. With him, though, they will no longer be humiliated. Nations will come to them to learn the ways of the Lord. We read about that in Isaiah chapter two, verse three. The nations will rally to the son, to Jesus, the son of David. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. This happens because the Lord who made them to be a nation at the beginning is still their God. He is the almighty God, not only of Israel, but of all the earth. And you can read that in Romans 3.29, Romans 4.18. And so we also see here that the Lord addresses Jerusalem, the city representing all of his covenant people. And he declares, he says, do not be afraid for you shall not uh, suffer shame anymore. Do not fear disgrace. For you shall not be humiliated. This is all in verse four. You will forget the shame of your youth and you will no longer remember the reproach of your widowhood. Just as God compared the disgrace of Israel to the shame of a barren woman, now he compares their humiliation to the reproach of widowhood. Here, the Lord is promising the rescue from both of these situations. He's promising rescue from both shame and humiliation. This rescue doesn't just stop at Israel. This rescue extends to both you and I today and for all of humanity. So in verse five, when it says the reason for this sure word of comfort and confidence is given to us in verse five, he says here, your maker is your husband. So, the very God that made us and to whom we must give an account, he is also the Christian's loving husband who will receive his people and his precious bride on the last great day. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God who is himself infinitely holy and who demands holiness is at the same time the redeemer of his people. He himself has satisfied all of the demands of his holy law and provided us with his own perfect righteousness. And so I want to point out where we read the same language here in the New Testament From the Apostle Paul, it's in Philippians chapter three, verses eight through nine. In regard to this perfect righteousness, it says, I regard all things as loss on account of all surpassing value of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, because of whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard all such things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God received by faith. And so look at me now here in verse six. And what we're going to see here now is the Lord now describes his people as a wife who has been restored to her husband. Israel in her rebellion is compared to a wife who has been divorced, unfaithful, but now she is restored and brought back into a covenant relationship with her husband, verse six. That's what that's communicating there. And look at me, look Look here with me. We're gonna read verses seven through eight now. It says, for a brief moment, I forsook, I forsook you, but with great compassion, I will gather you in a flood of fury. I hide my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. So the Lord declares for a brief moment, I have abandoned you, but with great compassion, I will bring you back. So in verse eight, in a surge of anger, he says, I have hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, declares Yahweh, your redeemer. Where else do we read this in the New Testament? Well, I'm glad you asked because we're going to read it. So the same language in the New Testament is in Romans 11 verses 25 through 27. when i take away their sins. And so in the Old Testament terms, here is a reference to Israel's exile into Babylon and then their restoration out of that exile to the Lord and to his into his presence into the promised land of Canaan. A small foreshadow that Israel would have experienced in that moment, but now futuristic, right? It's still yet to come. That partial hardening is still there because God is still working and saving the Gentile nations. So in ultimate terms, here's a reference to Christ's atoning death at Calvary and the believers union with Christ in his crucifixion and his resurrection. The overflowing wrath of God was poured out upon Christ at Calvary on behalf of of all those who believe in him at the same time, all those who believe in him are united to him by faith and consequently have entered into his death. And as the apostle declares in Galatians two twenty, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Furthermore, just as Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, So we are united with him in his resurrection life and will finally experience the resurrection of the body on the last day. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may now live a new life. And so here in Romans six, it says, if we have been united with him like this in his death, Romans six, verses four through five and then verse 10. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. The death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so we are now going to take a look at verses 9 through 10. And these verses are extremely fascinating to me. And out of this entire study really stood out to me. In verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 54, the Lord alludes to his sure covenant with Noah. The divine pledge that he would never again destroy this present world with a flood. As evidence and assurance that his restored wife can have full confidence in her new husband's renewed marriage vows. So let's look at verse eight again. And then I will share with you some things to keep in mind as we read through verses nine through ten. And then we will read them together. So in verse eight, it says, in describing that moment of absolute abandonment in verse eight experienced by his people from the Babylonian captivity. And ultimately, that abandonment experienced at Calvary, the Lord has used the term a surge of anger or overflowing wrath in verse eight. He says, I hide my face from you. And so picking up on those terms. Picking up on the term of surge of anger, overflowing wrath, I will hide my face from you. The Lord compares the outpouring of righteous wrath to the waters of Noah in this verse. And he will use as a further means in these verses to provide comfort and assurance to his people in verse nine. And so the Lord swore to Noah that never again will he cause the flood waters to cover the whole land. Likewise, the Lord now swears that he shall never again inflict his judgment against his people. So look in verse 9. For this is the day, this is God speaking. And he's saying, For this is like the days of Noah to me. When I swore that the waters of Noah would not overflow the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be furious with you, nor will I rebuke you any more. And so what he's basically saying here, right, is that this wrath, this judgment that he's brought upon Israel is in the comparison, same comparisons and bucket as the waters of Noah to him. And he's basically saying, I'm going to get rid of all that. All of that is going away and why and how is that going to be going away? Because I have poured out my wrath, my righteous wrath on my son, Jesus Christ in chapter 53. That is what he's saying here. And so he's basically saying, I will no longer remember these things. And and where do we get that from in the New Testament? I thought of Romans chapter eight, verse one. Remember, therefore. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we saw all this wrath building up to the exile, all this wrath building up here for Israel. And then now God has sent his son in chapter 53, has poured all that wrath on his son. And in this verse, he's saying, all of this reminds me to the wrath that I poured out in Noah in those days. The same example there is what I just did for my son. Jesus Christ in chapter 53 and you will I will I won't remember it anymore because he goes on and he says when I swore that the waters of noah would not overflow the earth anymore that was the promise that he made and so you see the same promise being fulfilled here through the wrath poured out in son Jesus Christ the promise of God is now made to his people even more sure i don't even know if that's proper english but it's more sure Right mean, there's a longer duration in that. That longer duration is longer than Noah, the promise made to Noah from verse 10. And by the way, that promise was recorded in Genesis chapter eight, verse 22. And so God promised Noah that there would never again be a universal flood for as long as the earth remains. As long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat And summer and winter. And so we will see this similar promise made because of Christ. Um, And so here we have, I think I just went over all that with you guys. Okay. And so now let's read those verses nine through 10 again. So we can get through verse 10 here. And he goes on and he says uh, in verse 10 for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake. But my loving kindness will not be, be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken. Says Yahweh who has compassion on you. So between these two verses. Verses 9 and verses 10. Wow. Amazing. Do you see the depths of God's promises in these verses here? Are you standing firm On God's promises. As you see these verses here. And so in summary. What are these verses communicating to us? In the days of Noah. God became grieved at the wickedness of mankind. God sent a flood for 40 days and 40 nights. And wiped out humanity. Except for Noah and his family in the ark. God sent a rainbow to say never again. Now because of Israel's wickedness. And disobedience. God sent his son his wrath was poured out on the servant Isaiah 53 there will never again be anger poured out on the people of God because of what Christ has done we have a covenant of peace the small snapshots of a barren woman a deserted wife from her husband living in the exile never again Will this judgment be poured out on Israel or anyone who believes because the wrath was satisfied in Christ and for all who believe? And so when we think about standing on the promises, God has communicated his assurance through two different illustrations here for us in these first 10 verses. Standing on the promises of God means believing what God has said. God set the rainbow in the sky to remind them of the covenant of God had made with man to never flood the entire world again. God's word is good. He does what he says. And if he says he forgives, he does. Remember, this is the theme of salvation. So if God says, I will forgive, that will be removed. Then that means it will happen. If he says there will be a covenant of peace, then there is a covenant of peace. This is the promise Isaiah is telling Israel. And so here's the recap of these verses. If you're taking notes, verse four, he says, fear not. That includes worry and anxiety. In verse four, again, he says, you will not be disgraced. These are all the promises he's talking about. Verse 4 again, you will forget the shame of your youth. Verse 5, your maker, your creator, is your husband and your redeemer. Promise. Verse 8, another promise. In God's everlasting love, he will have compassion on us. Verse 9, I will not be angry with you anymore. Verse 10, my steadfast love and covenant of peace shall not depart from you. A lot of promises into these first 10 verses. And so what is this prophetic picture portraying? The Lord's people will not be ashamed when they stand before him. They will not be cast away for he has redeemed them and he has established with them an everlasting covenant of peace. And so the Old Testament application here, as we continue to draw on the illustration of, of Babylon, because of their spiritual adultery, the Lord had divorced his people, Israel, sending them away to the Babylonian captivity. And he is saying, I'm never gonna do that again. Never gonna do it again. But now he has called them back to himself with the assurance That their shame, their disgrace, their humiliation has all been replaced with a renewed covenant of peace with their Lord and God through Jesus Christ. And so the final fulfillment of this promise for all those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the world's day of judgment shall prove to be our wedding day. Rather than being cast away in shame into total darkness, we will be received as the Lord's bride with whom he makes an everlasting covenant of peace. And we read about this in Ephesians chapter five. We just, we've also talked about this in main service. Christ loved the church. Ephesians five, verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water by the word. So that he might present the church to himself in glory without blemish or wrinkle or any other such thing, but being holy and blameless. We know that God does exactly what he says. He regards his word above even his own name. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, he says, "Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away." So His words are words of promise. His words are words of fulfillment. This is just saying that God's word is completely absolute. He is a merciful God. And in Hebrews 8:12, here's what it says. It says, "For I." will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. A merciful God. And so when we think about verse 17, like our Christian heritage and our assurance as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall experience complete acceptance with God on the day of judgment and for all of eternity With Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so now for our final illustration of restoration, we will see a picture of future and final restoration in the new city of Jerusalem. We will see the splendor, the safety, the protection of this city. We are going to see a lot of imagery here. We're going to see a lot of description of the New Jerusalem, so bear with me as we go through this. But as we read verses eleven through fourteen, you're going to see things like fair colors, sapphires, agates, carbuncles, pleasant stones. This elaborate ornament um, ornaments descriptions and how this will out outfit out Jerusalem. And what this is going to look like in the future. And so, eternally, the Messianic reign following the millennial kingdom. And we're going to read more about that in Revelation 21. But what I found interesting about these verses, as magnificent as all of this is, and as magnificent as we're going to see the structure, the designs, the description, all the stones, all the ornaments, the brilliance of all of this, what is interesting is not as important as the spiritual rich, richness that will be there in the kingdom. Verse 13, where it says, When truth and peace, and then verse 14, prevail along with righteousness. All that will be there in its perfect state. And so the Lord Himself will teach everyone during the Messianic kingdom. So everyone will know his righteousness. And we read about that in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9. You can also read about that in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. Jesus gave this verse as additional focus for us, applying it to those with spiritual insight to come to him during his first arrival when he walked here on this earth. And you get you get a glimpse of that from John chapter six, verse 45, where Jesus says, it is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. And so look at verses 11 and 12. And it says, oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not conformed Confort it, comfort it. Behind. behold, I will lay your stones in anatomy and your foundations I will set in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. And so what's he saying here? This is speaking of that holy city that is to come, that new Jerusalem that's, that he has prepared, which will come down from God out of heaven. And we read that in the scriptures in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21. I'm going to read that for us. Revelation 21, 19 through 21. And here's some of those same stones that are being mentioned there. It says the wall was built of Jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of, of all of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was Jasper the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth oxen, the sixth car, carnalion, the seventh, I don't know how to say some of these, uh, silic, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth, you get the point. There's a lot of stones here. Okay? And then there's amethyst, right? Which I'm all about the amethyst, right? If you have a birthday in February. And the 12 gates, and in verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And so here we have verses 11 through 17 is just this future description of the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And the book of Revelation is talking about it as well. And then look at verse 13. It says, all your sons will be taught by Yahweh and the peace of your sons will be great. And I just thought about Hebrews eight verses ten through twelve. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord, I will put my law into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, "Know the Lord," for all shall know me. For the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. Will I remember no more? Everyone being taught by God, everyone being taught the scriptures and his word because of what his son, Jesus Christ, did on the cross. Why? Because Israel didn't get it done. Israel was not communicating who their God was. And you're going to continue to see this. Ultimately, we're going to be taught by Christ. Verse 14, in righteousness, you will be established. You will, by, you will be far from oppression. You will not fear and from terror, for it will not come near you. And I just thought about where there's righteousness, there's perfect peace also. In the new Jerusalem, there will be no danger and nothing to fear. Even death itself has been defeated. There's no temptation to sin, it's gone. And we read more about this in Revelation chapter 21, but now verses 1 through 4. And it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of the heavens saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying neither shall there be any more pain for the former things have all passed away. So that's the description in verses 11 through 14 of that new millennial kingdom that's to come. That's what he's talking about here. And so as we kind of round the corner here in verses 15 and 17, whosoever shall gather against these shall fall. What he says here in the millennial kingdom, this will occur as prophesized by John in the book of Revelation, verse 20, verses seven through nine. The Lord will burn up all of Israel's enemies. The heritage of the Lord's servants in Messiah's kingdom will include Christ's protection from the people that want to conquer them. And then in 15, he says, behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whoever so shall gather together against thee shall fall for their sake. God is the very present help of all of his people. Those who are opposed to God's people are against God. They will not win because God will take up the battle for them. And this is the promise that you see here. And then in verse 16, he says, behold, I've created the Smith that blow the coals in the fire and that bring forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the the waster to destroy. So here's what's going through my mind. And again, these verses are very futuristic, describing the new millennial kingdom. But here's what's going through my mind as I'm reading this verse. God is the creator of all things, even Satan. Satan. Everything God created is under his command. Not anything can do you harm because it has to obey God. Nothing can do you harm. Satan can't do that. Satan has to get God's permission to do anything. God will not allow anything to occur that he hasn't allowed to occur. He just, it's not in his nature so everything in this verse, after thinking through all that, everything is at peace in this new Jerusalem in this millennial kingdom because of the presence of God in Christ. There will be no darkness because the light of the world is there. And then in verse 17, he says, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment shall you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me says Yahweh. Another great promise that we see here from our Lord and shows his mighty power. God is the protector of all of Israel. He protects his family. Though they come against us, they will not prosper is what he's saying. This promise is for all who believe in Jesus, our Savior, as well. We have been given power and authority to use the name of Jesus against the enemy for protection. At that name, every knee must bow. Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And so in conclusion here, I'm gonna wrap it up with that quote. At the by Charles Spurgeon, he says, "The beauty and wonderful promises God gives gives to His people Israel and to us today speak hope beyond the place we find ourselves, and quite possibly we have found ourselves where we are by our own choices. This was the case for Israel, yet for us, through the redemption of Jesus, new life." And then bolder callings are given: Cling to these hopes, and yes, enlarge your tent towards the greater thing God, towards the greater things God wants to do. So in direct correlation to the message of this chapter, I also thought about First Peter chapter 2, verses five through 10. And so I'm going to include this as part of the conclusion. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, it reminds us that we are an elect nation, a holy priesthood, living stones built on the foundation stone, a people that has obtained mercy and will not be put to shame, and that we are to show forth our promise of him as we live in righteousness before all people who will see our good works and glorify the Father. So the message for us today is, is the same as the message for the returning exiles coming out of the Babylonian exile in chapter 54. God has begun a new work in Christ and called us as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, displaying the mercies and righteousness of God. Great promises of blessings, of peace, safety, and victory are held out to so all those who obediently walk in God's perfect will for our lives and that place their trust in Him. But I'd also say that this does not complete the fulfillment of these verses either. Because it's still not the end of the age yet, it's still not the dawn of the Messianic age, it hasn't come upon us. But we can know through these promises and these verses, God will regather his people and he will build his holy city and he will make his servants into spiritual servants. God will do what God says he will do and he will accomplish his plan the way he wants to. And he will uphold these promises. This chapter, chapter 54 is a wonderful reminder for us to stand on all of these promises because they will be fulfilled. And so, if you're at your outline there and you're looking at the applications, I wrote a couple things down here. Christian, when you find yourself discouraged or in need of comfort, look to the heritage reserved for you in Christ. We shall inherit the full bounty of God's renewed creation. We shall enjoy complete acceptance with God. We shall participate in the beauty and glory of righteousness. We shall experience perfect peace and security as the concluding verse of this passage testifies. And then I thought of 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 17. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me out of every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Oh, kingdom To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That was a little talk to text there, so I don't think it created a period. Um, so let's, let's go to the word to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord. We are here this morning with humble hearts, recognizing what a wonderful text of scripture, standing on the promises of of what Christ, your son, accomplished, the results of that accomplishment coming out of Isaiah 53. And Lord, we see ultimately your promises being fulfilled for Israel and ultimately being fulfilled for your church. And one day we will all be together in the millennial kingdom and then one day in the new heavens and the new earth. And Lord, we see these promises and these illustrations of coming out of the exile of a barren woman, of a deserted wife. And yet you give us the hope in verse nine and verse 10 where all of that is gone away. It's no longer looked upon because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And so Lord, we're thankful for the covenant of peace. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who does not understand or know this peace, Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged by these verses. Lord, I pray that all of us would continue to put our full faith in Christ and that we would increase that you would help us increase our faith and we're thankful for this time and we pray all this in your son's name Amen